Dear Father, as we come here today before you, as we open your word, as we do every week and every day as we read your word, we pray that you instruct us and that you will truly teach us uh, what it means to live rightly before you and to watch over our lives as we look forward to Jesus coming and to be taken to everlasting salvation and uh, into heaven. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, before I uh, became a, a pastor, I was an accountant and an auditor. And uh, um, one of the worst things about being an auditor, I think to me anyway, when I look back, was the annual stock take. Uh, you know, I don't know whether you all know what the annual stock take is. It's where you actually have to physically uh, verify what uh, the company owns. And you know, it's really dirty work. You know, you turn up and we don't wear uh, ties and you know, shirts that day. We wear, you know, like rough clothes because you're always going to be very dirty and grimy because you're crawling around all these cobwebs and dust and looking for things to make sure that they're still there and uh, matching what the accounting records say. But I think that's really important, you know, the, the, the stock take because at the end of the day, if you don't do a stock take, you don't know what's really there. And uh, I rang up uh, this Christian bookshop in Singapore uh, not too long ago. I'm sure you all know which one it is. It's a, it's a very big one in Singapore, the SKS bookshop. And uh, I rang up and I was trying to find two comment- uh, a commentary that I really needed. And they said, okay, hold on a second. Let me check my records. And they said, okay, yeah, yeah, we have it. Uh, we have two copies of this commentary. But uh, let me check for a second. Then he ran off and he took a long time, was hanging on to the phone. And he said, I'm so sorry. You know, our records say that we have two copies of this commentary, but... I can't find it. It's not there. And I think that's why it's so important to physically have a stock take once in a while to know whether your records actually show what's really there. And I think that that's what's happening here as we look at Malachi chapter two today, uh, chapter 3 today because it's like a spiritual stock take, like a spiritual audit. You know, we come to church every week, we read the Bible, we sing our songs, we pray to God. But we need sometimes to make a spiritual stock take to see if there's something really there, whether there's something missing in our Christian walk with God. And I think that that's where we really need to pay attention today and it's going to be dirty, grimy and hard work but you need to do the hard work and examine your heart to see whether there is really something there in your relationship with God. Now, over the last few weeks we've been looking at the book of Malachi and it's been a very challenging book uh, to me, I hope for you as well. And the context was, as we uh, have saw recent, uh, not too long ago, was that uh, it was spoken or written to uh, God's people who had returned from exile. So they were taken to exile in Babylon and then they were, they were brought back to uh, Judah and Jerusalem. And uh, they had been there for uh, a few generations by this time when the book of Malachi had been written. And they thought they were doing okay before God. You know, they rebuilt the temple, they were doing their religious practices, they were worshipping God, they were sacrificing animals. But as we've been looking in the book of Malachi, they were not okay. Uh, They were far from being okay. Because they failed uh, for wanting to appreciate the love of God. They were taking God's love for granted. And then we saw how they were failing to respect and honor God. They were not fearing God in the way that they were sacrificing the animals. And last week we saw that they were being faithless to God. Because they were faithless to one another. In terms of marrying uh, sons and daughters of foreign gods children of uh, other religions, and divorcing one another. Now, today's passage, as you are uh, listening to Lena reading chapter 3, you might think that it's quite long and complicated compared to the previous chapters that we looked at. Because in the last few weeks, all the chapters and all the passages all had to do with one topic. But actually, this week, as you look at it, it's got a few topics going in it. It feels like there's more things happening. 
But actually it's quite straightforward. So if you look up here, God actually is, is asking them to look at their life in two main areas. So in chapter 2, verse 17 to 3, 5, it's all about the topic of speaking words which weary God, very wearying to God. Okay, it would be helpful if you look at your Bibles. At this time, you can follow what I'm saying, right? not just listen to me. But look at what the Bible is saying. In two, chapter 2, verse 17 and 3, 5, you can see that that's what is being addressed by God. They were speaking wearing words. Then in chapter 3, verse 6 to verse 12, it's all about the topic of the people robbing God. Right? That's what it says there in chapter 3, verse 6. Right? Uh, 3, uh, 3, verse 8, you know, how, why do you rob me? Then again in chapter 3, verse 13 to chapter 3, verse 18, he comes back to the topic of speaking words. But instead of wearing words, they are harsh words, hard words, arrogant words. Now, for the sake of simplicity, I will just deal with the shorter topic first and then deal with the longer one later, Okay, the sandwich ones. So let's deal, first of all, with God's accusation to His people that they are robbing Him. Okay, In verse 6 to 9, God says, right, uh, in uh, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have, not, you have turned away from my decrees, have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And this is what God says, Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. Now what does he mean here in terms of tithes and offerings? And I think this is a very important topic because it's very, um, a very misunderstood topic, especially in the church today. The word tithes literally means tenth. Ten percent. That's what tithes means. Ten percent. And what was happening is, in, in, in God's land, for God's people in those days, they had a tax system where they were to pay ten percent of all their produce, their income, their crops to God. It was like our tax. Right? So we pay more than ten percent. And instead of going to the upkeep of the temple, we pay for upkeep of the roads, the, the, the MRT or the botanical gardens and things like that. But in, in the time of Israel and God's people, they used to pay tax of 10% in order to upkeep the temple and the priests. So here, in Numbers 18, uh, verse 18, uh, 23 to 21 to 23, right? This top part. Yeah, how come it's squashed, huh? Okay, uh, there was a gap there before, but anyway. But from Numbers 18, look at what it says. And the book of Numbers is about the rules that God gives to Israel as it goes to the Promised Land. I give to the Levites all the tithes or the, ten, the, the tenths or the ten percent in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. From now on, the Israelites must not go near the tent of meeting, or they will bear the consequences of their sin and will die. It is the Levites who are to do the work at the tent of meeting and bear the responsibility for the offences against it. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. So the 10% here, or the, the tithes, or the tens, was a form of a national taxation to allow the Levites to go and serve as the priests and to look after the temple and to mediate between God's people and God. But it wasn't just the tithes which were to be used to support uh, these Levite priests. Because the offerings uh, which are mentioned here are not the offerings which were given to God, but part of the offerings which were given to the priests as part of their 
food allowance. I think of it as a food allowance. You, know, you have your wage and you have your food allowance. So the offerings are the food allowance. Because in Leviticus, uh, chapter 7, verse 32 and 34, this is what God says about the offerings. The Lord said to Moses, you are to give the right tithe of your fellowship offering to the priests as a contribution. For from the, from the fellowship offerings of the Israelites, I have taken a breast that is waved and a thigh, the thigh that is presented and have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons as their regular share for, from the Israelites. So not only do they have a tax system which will support the priests in terms of uh, giving them food and stuff, but every time they give offerings, uh, one part of the offering would be given to the priests for their food allowance. But that was not what was happening here, you see. Uh, the situation was the people were not giving their tithes and offerings uh, to the priests. Uh, in fact, they were going back to what had happened a few generations before when the exiles had first returned from Babylon to the Promised Land. So, Nehemiah chapter 13, the next slide, this was exactly the same situation which I think was happening in the time of Malachi. Uh, in Nehemiah recorded, I also learned that por- the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and the singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. They were going back to the fields and working their fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? So we can see that uh, this fits very well into the picture of Malachi that we've read uh, over the last few weeks. Because the people... Uh, were not being uh, honouring God. They're not respecting and fearing God. And a few weeks ago, we learned that they were cheating God with their sacrifices. Instead of giving God the nice, perfect lamb or goat, which costs a lot of money, they were giving God their worthless, blind, injured, maimed lamb or goat as a sacrifice. And God said, in chapter 1, verse 14, that they were cheating God. And here God says that they are robbing God because they are not giving their tithes and offerings. And uh, it's the same principle, they want to save money, right? So instead of giving the good goat, they give the lousy goat. Instead of giving their 10%, maybe they don't give 5% or 1% or nothing at all. But it's not just one or two people who are doing it. If you look at the verse 9, it says, The whole nation of you, you are robbing me. Right? That's what it says there in verse, in verse 9. The whole nation, the whole nation has become like tax cheats. But they are cheating God, they are robbing God of his tithes and offerings which go to the priest. And how does God respond to this? Does God say, okay, because of this, I'm going to send you a letter from the tax office right, and say that, okay, you're going to be fine and go to jail? No, he doesn't, right? He says something really remarkable. Something quite fantastic. He says in verse 10, Bring the whole tithe, all that you owe, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will have not room enough for it. I'll prevent the pest from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit says the Lord Almighty, then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. See, God doesn't say, if you don't give me your 10%, uh, if you don't give me the offerings for the priest, I will punish you, I will you know, send you 
to jail or prison or tax you more. But God says, if you would trust me, I would open the floodgates of heaven and you would have prosperity and blessing. Now, uh, God is not exaggerating here because he uses a phrase in verse 10 and he says, I will open the floodgates of heaven for you. And for, for those Jews and for ourselves who read the Bible carefully, we would know that God has used this phrase before, the floodgates of heaven. So in Genesis chapter 7, uh, God actually said that when he you know, brought the great flood on the earth, he opened the floodgates of heaven. Right? So what is he saying here? He's literally saying, if you would only trust me, I would flood you with so much abundance of blessings and food and everything that it would be like the great flood all over again. See, well, why were the people not paying their 10% tax? Why were they not giving the offerings to the priests? Maybe because times were hard, times were tough. The crops were patchy, there was drought. So they were holding back a bit of their own crops and produce for themselves. They're saying, you know, better keep some in reserve. Why give it to God? Why give it to the priests? Right? Uh, maybe I need to keep some for a rainy day. But God says, put me to the test, right? It's a very strong challenge. So put me to the test. Give what you owe me and see that I will provide you even more than what you currently have. Now, the million dollar question is, how do we understand the passage today? Isn't it? Uh, are we to understand the principles that we learn here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 to uh, 12 in the same way that the original hearers heard it and understood it in Malachi's day? Well, I think the answer is uh, yes and no. Okay? <coughs> Politicians answer. Yes and no. Um, but how yes and no? Well, I think that no, in the sense that we do not receive a floodgate of blessing today if we obey God. Okay? Uh, people will use this passage and say, well, you know, if we apply this today, if you give all your money to the church, you know, God will bless you and open the floodgates of, of heaven and bless you materially. You, you have so much blessing, you don't even know what to do, do with it, right? But I think that it fails to understand how God works and expresses himself in the Bible, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, okay, you need to pay attention, right? Because this is very important, and plus it deals with your money, right? In the Old Testament, obedience was often reflected in God's blessing materially. Right? In the Old Testament, obedience was often reflected in God's blessing materially, in fertility, in crops, and in uh, wealth, all those sort of things. Because God's people were living in God's land. Right? God's people, Israel, were living in God's land. And God said, if you look up here in the book of Joshua, okay, there's the map for you, in case you don't, don't understand. Okay, so God's people, sorry, go back again, the map. So God's people were living in God's land, and God said that if they obeyed Him, God would bless them materially. You know, the, the land would be very fertile, there'd be lots of rain, not flood. There wouldn't be drought. There wouldn't be locusts. And we can see that in the book of Joshua. Next slide, Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. Now, Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 to 8 is when they enter into the promised land. 
Right? And God promised them that if they went in there and they obeyed Him, they would be blessed materially. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to it, turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let uh, this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. See, I want you to pay attention to this uh, passage. Uh, he says that you will be successful wherever you go. And how will that success be measured? Not, not so much spiritually, but by being prosperous and successful materially. Okay? Being prosperous and successful in a material way. But in the New Testament, after Jesus comes, uh, we no longer are living in God's land. And we're not God's people in the sense where we are situation in Israel and Judah. So in the New Testament, we've moved from God's people being God's land to God's people being all over the world. Matthew chapter 28, right? Disciples from all corners of the world, all nations will turn to God. So Jesus, when he comes, actually expresses blessing in terms of spiritual blessing, not material blessing anymore. So Matthew chapter 6, okay, next slide. Look at what Jesus says. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put all your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your God who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now how is this reward given? Uh, by being very rich, getting a Lamborghini, uh, right? Wearing Armani, No. In verse 17, verse 19, Jesus goes on to explain, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So what we are seeing here in the book of Malachi is that God rewards His people. Right? But... In Old Testament times, he rewards them materially because they live in the land. But in the New Testament time, after the time of Jesus, he rewards them because we look forward to the eternal land that we're going to in heaven. So therefore, we must never ever listen to people who say, okay, and this is a true thing, right? I've heard this being said from the pulpit in some church. It says, okay, look, BTPC, right, is better than a bank. If you give us your money will give you a better return from the bank. Because you know the bank, how much does the bank give you now? Maybe 3%, right, 2%, whatever, very low, right? Now, actually my wife does the banking, so I don't really know. But anyway, <coughs> but, uh, but you know, if you come and give us, look at what God says, the floodgates of heaven will be open. So if you give us your money, you will get a thousand times back. Better than the bank. But I don't think that's what God is saying here at all, right? Uh, God is saying that you know, as we live in the New Testament, our blessings are no longer material, but our blessings are found in heaven. So I met a woman, and she had tears in her eyes because she told me how much money she gave to her church. And she lost all her money, 
but she never got this blessing. But it's because people are not reading the Bible properly. They don't understand what's called biblical theology. Biblical theology is where the Old Testament and the New Testament, they fit together. They're not you know, all one thing. God works through history. Right? They don't understand how it fits all together and it leads to Jesus Christ. So the first thing is, the promises which are given here, no, they do not relate to us materially, but they relate to us in a blessing, in a spiritual sense. The second thing which I think uh, this passage doesn't relate to us is the idea of tithing. Tithing. So you go to some churches and they'll say, okay, all of you must give 10% to church. Come rain, hail, shine, you must give 10%. Okay? Because if you understand this passage in its context, the 10% was like a national tax on the nation of Israel, God's people, to upkeep the temple and the temple administration, the priests, the Levites, the Aaronites. But we are no longer living in God's nation in that way. Right? Our, our tax is paid to the government to, to, you know, to give us HDB uh, flats and cars. I mean, not cars, sorry, roads and, and, and then my, uh, cars you buy yourself, right? Okay. Okay. Um, so we don't pay this temple tax, this 10% tax. But the Bible, the New Testament, tells us that we have a different principle. We give generously. Okay. So in 2 Corinthians chapter. Um, Nine, it says, uh, the principle says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But whoever reaps sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give as he has decided in his heart to give. He didn't say 10%, right? Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound in you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So, God is not saying you must give 10%. God is saying give generously. And at different times in your life, you may give more or less. So if you're a poor student, you're, you know, you're starving. I don't see anybody like that here, but, but okay. But you, know, you don't have to give 10%. Uh, I remember someone telling me in their church, uh, they took out a loan, a housing loan, of a couple of hundred thousand dollars. I'm sure you all know how much that, that is. Right? And, the, and the church said, well, you've got this couple hundred thousand dollars, you must pay us 10% out of that. But, but, but that's, not, that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying at different times, you give generously and cheerfully out of your, you, you know, what you have. So, we mustn't feel that, oh, you know, it's always 10%, 10%. No, it's, it's what you want to give generously and cheerfully in your heart. Now, before you think, well, that's really great. I don't have to give very much at all. The principle is to give generously, to give generously. Okay, because we must not rob God of you know, being generous to Him and, and just keeping or hoarding all this thing to ourselves. And I think that Luke, this passage here, Luke chapter 12, is a very, very important principle for us. Uh, I want you to just pay really close attention to this because I, I wish I had more time to explain it, but I don't. But Jesus here is telling a parable he says, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Okay? 
But God said to him, you fool, uh, this very night your, your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Two things I want you to note here is that uh, we can understand the parable about this man who's living for his own life, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. That's a picture of a person who lives for himself. And as, you know, he, he's only living for himself. But God says in verse 20 that your life will be demanded from you. And the word there, demanded, is literally the word which is used when I lend you something and I demand it back. Right? The, the bank lo- loans you some money and they want it back. I lend you my jacket or my car and I need it back. I demand it back. So the principle is, the things that we have are not really our own. From God's perspective, we are merely stewards of it. We are merely keeping it for Him. So God then goes on to say, well, instead of storing things up for ourselves, in verse 21, right? Instead of storing things up for ourselves, we must be rich towards God. We must be generous towards God. We must not rob God. And I think that's the principle here. It's not about 10% or not 10%. It's about being generous uh, with the things that you have for God's purposes. And that's where we come to the last point, where I think the principle of providing for God's uh, ministry, God's work, is still relevant today as it was then. Now, this is very difficult for me to talk about because obviously uh, it's talking a bit about myself. So let me just let God's word speak for itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, all right, next slide, it says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, isn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much that we reap a material harvest from you? So the principle is still the same. God expects us to use our money, not to build church buildings, right? But to spend in terms of supporting His ministry and bringing the gospel into the world. And when we fail to do that out of our plenty, we're actually robbing God. And uh, it's very unfortunate because I hear very sad stories. Uh, I've heard of a pastor uh, in a Chinese church who understood that he was going to be employed by another Chinese church. But then when he resigned from his church, the other church said, well, now that you don't have a job, we will not pay you as much as we were originally going to pay you because now you, know, you don't have a job. Right? And I know of churches where they have a few pastors, but they don't want to ordain more than one pastor at a time because by ordaining that pastor, uh, they actually have to pay the pastor more. So, you know, it saves money because you only ordain one at a time, right? So, you know, uh, I have a classmate of mine who is actually no longer in ministry. He was in Australia. And uh, uh, I heard that he, you know, he was asked to stay in a flat with his family. He's got quite a lot of few kids. And his wife cried because she saw what a bad condition uh, the flat was in. So, I think that it's very important for us that uh, out of our plenty, we provide for God's ministry for people to go out into the world uh, to do ministry. Paul Barker, our speaker at the church camp, was telling me, because you know, he's from Australia, but he ministers in Malaysia. He said that, you know, it's really sad for him when he goes back to Australia and he sees people living in such indulgence. 
with so much and so plenty. When he knows of people who are ministers in Myanmar or Pakistan or China or India who want to go to theological college but they can't afford to. And all it would take would just be a fraction of uh, these rich Christians' uh, money to, to provide for them. So, there was a story of uh, the Duke of Wellington. I don't know whether you know the Duke of Wellington. I didn't know the Duke of Wellington. But you all know Napoleon, right? So the Duke of Wellington had defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. I think you all know Napoleon, right? And there was this guy who was writing a story, of his, the, the biography of the Duke of Wellington. And uh, he found uh, the check stubs of uh, the Duke of Wellington. You know the check stubs? You write your checks and then on the, the side you write what the checks are for. And he said, when I saw how he spent his money, I knew the man. And I think it's true, isn't it, in a way? If people could see your, your check stubs, your bank statements, your credit card statements, people would know what sort of person you are and what things are important to you. Uh, what you spend your money on is a reflection of what you prioritize in life. So I think that what we learn from Malachi is we, we, not, we mustn't rob God, but we must be generous to Him. Uh, we must, we must uh, not be rich towards ourselves, but rich towards God. We must, we must not hoard and store everything for ourselves, but be rich towards God. Now, let's, let's go on to the next topic, uh, which is up here for you. I've made it easier for you. And the people have been speaking very wearying words. Like, you know, uh, things are very tiring, very burdensome things about God. In chapter 2, uh, verse 17. But in chapter 3, verse 13 and 15, um, God actually raises up the stakes. He says that it's not just wearying these words, right? not very burdensome, but they are harsh words. The words here literally means that you are saying very hard words against me, very arrogant words. You're like speaking bad things about me, speaking down to me. So what are they saying? Uh, what are they saying about God? Well, uh, I've coloured it for you to make it easier for you. Well, I think they're saying two things really. Uh, the first thing is they're sort of saying, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? And it seems as if they are looking around the world and they say, look, people are doing bad things but God is not judging them. Right? Bad people are doing bad things but God is not doing anything. He's turning a blind eye. It reminds me of, uh, I was at the, taking the MRT and I was at Bishan Interchange. You know, Bishan Interchange is really busy. People are always going in and out because it's a major interchange. So there's this little boy, must only be about five or six, quite chubby kid, and uh, the MRT came into the station and all these people were waiting to come out. The whole train was packed. So this little kid, we were all very obedient. We were giving, you know, opening the way so they come. This little kid stood right in front of the, of the door. And I'm like looking at this guy and his mother's, I think, I don't know, he, uh, my, my Chinese are very, and he just stood there. When the door opened, he was like rugby forward, you know, pushed his way through everybody. Right, went in. And then when he went in, you know what he did? He lay down on three seats, right? And the mom was screaming after him, Anything wrong? And then after that, after that, he ran off and he ran up and down the corridor, right? 
And that's what the people were thinking of God, isn't it? God is like this soft touch God, you know? He's like NATO, all, no action, talk only. Right? The evil people, they're doing all the bad things. But what is God doing? He's not doing anything. But then what is even worse is the accusation gets worse, isn't it? Because they go on to say, not only is God not uh, seeing these things, but look at what it says there in chapter 2, verse 17. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and He is pleased with them. He is pleased with Not only does He not judge them, but they seem to be blessed. You know, they're getting richer, they're happy, they're at peace. Uh, life is a good life for them. And uh, it gets worse and worse because in this uh, section, when, God, when they say harsh things to them, it's almost as if God's people are very envious of how blessed uh, these rich people, uh, these evildoers are. You, you notice, a, a, if you read carefully, look, look carefully in your Bibles, huh? They said in verse that, chapter 3, verse 15, And now we call the arrogant blessed. It's almost like they are very envious and very sort of uh, questioning of, is it really worth following God's ways? I wonder whether you ever feel like that. Maybe it's your relative. Maybe it's your classmate. Maybe it's your colleague at work. Or maybe you open a newspaper and you look at all the rock stars and the sportsmen living uh, really evil lives, but they are doing so well and they seem so happy and uh, so content and everything. You know, it's almost as if as a Christian at work, uh, someone has actually said to me, as, as a Christian at work, you know, you're faithful, but that puts you at a disadvantage. Uh, if you care about God, you don't have the edge, right? Uh, if you follow Jesus instead of being a blessing, as a handicap in life. And you feel like, is it really worth following God. God doesn't judge evil. He blesses evil. And maybe we feel a bit like the psalmist does in chapter uh, 73 in the book of Psalms. I don't know whether you can relate to this, right? But the good thing about the book of Psalms is it's, it's sort of very honest about its emotions. It said, For I envy the arrogant. Right? The arrogant is always an expression of the evil person. He's arrogant against God. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocent. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. That's the sort of feeling that they had. Because maybe they weren't actually saying it words, but that's what they were feeling. Maybe you feel that way too. Then the, the second question, the harsh things that they say about God is, they say it is in chapter 3, uh, verse 14, right? Next one, right? The green thing. It is futile, they say. It is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out His commandments and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Saying, so why should we serve God? Right? And why should we obey God's commandments, His requirements, His law? And why should we go about like mourners? Uh, the idea of mourning always comes with repentance. Why should I feel bad that I sin? Why should I go about in sackcloth and repent and fight against sin? Now, do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, you know, what is the point of serving God? It is futile. 
You know, maybe you used to serve a lot when you're in the youth group, but then now you're older, you know, you're working, you're very busy, you think, what's the point of serving? Maybe you're a Bible study leader or something, now you're older, uh, and then you think, oh no, what's the point? Like, I'll just have a rest. You know, what's the point of doing morning tea, coming and serving, week after week, year after year, decade after decade? Or maybe you think, you know, what's the point of following God's requirements? You know, obeying God. I keep praying, but I'm still sick. I keep meeting regularly, but I don't have good friends. You know, I have a godly life, but I've yet to find a Christian marriage partner. I'm resisting temptation, but it just won't go away. And you feel, oh, what's the point? Maybe I should just give up. It's going to be very tiring, right? About repenting of sin, right? You know, you sort of feel, what's the point of feeling bad all the time? You know, like, why can't I be like the wicked and be carefree? Yeah, la, you know, you see bad things on the internet, swear here, you know, get angry at people, not show love to people. And I feel bad and guilty, right? Why don't I just forget all that and just do what I want to do? Do you relate to this picture? Maybe you don't say it with your mouth, but maybe, you know, deep inside, that's what you're thinking, right? Because God, He's not just saying that they're actually saying it, but that's what they're showing by their actions and the way that they are behaving. Well, that's you, and this is a sermon to me as well. You know, it's very important that we repent from that thinking because it is absolutely wrong. Every one of those statements, every one of those statements is absolutely wrong. The wicked do not get blessed. It is not futile to serve God and follow His requirements. And God is a just God. The answer that God gives uh, can be seen in, uh, in, in chapter 3, right? From uh, verse 2 to verse 5. And, and His answer basically is that God is God, not the God of Zap, the Zap, okay? Okay, now we often think, you know, God is the, the God of the Zap. Uh, next slide, okay? That means, you know, God, when we think of God of justice, okay, when he sees something wrong, God must zap the person. Okay, and he must do it now. But God actually says, all these things will come to pass in the day of judgment. The day of judgment must always be kept in view, the certainty and the reality of it, because on that day, everything will be made right. See, look at what it says there in verse 5. Oh, sorry, verse 2. Oh, sorry, but... Um, Sorry, uh, verse 1. When God answers His people. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and He will purify the Levites, and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I'll come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, what's happening here? is that God says that He's going to send a messenger, but we'll look at that later, but He says that He is going to come. Okay, the messenger comes, then the Lord comes, and the Lord is called, in verse 1, as the messenger of the covenant. 
or what in trans- some translations called the deliverer of the covenant. The covenant was made of a, like a contract, right? And the contract had blessings and curses. Promises and judgment, approval and wrath. And God's people, it says there, pay attention to what it says there in verse 1, they were looking forward to God coming, right? It says, you, the, the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. They were calling on God to come because they thought that God was going to bless them, was going to approve of them, was going to give them blessings because they had the temple, they did the sacrifices. But God says how wrong you will be. Because when God comes, He will come in judgment. He will be like the refiner's fire, uh, which is like a very hot fire which purifies metal. All the impurities come out and you're left with the pure gold or silver. He's like the launderer's soap. Okay, we understand that, right? You know, you do your laundry, all the dirt comes out. And who is that that is refined away or purified out of the dirt or the stains washed out? All those who are evil. All those who are arrogant. Right, that's, what, that's what God is answering them, right? God is saying, where is the God of justice? Well, God says, I will come and when I come, I will I will refine and purify you and take out all the evil and judge the evil. And that's why in chapter 3, verse 5, next slide, right, he goes on to say, I will come near to you for judgment and I will testify against all these people, the sorcerers, the adulterers, perjurers, all these sort of people. But they're not limited to these people. These are just a, a sampling of the arrogant and the evildoers. But who will be left who is the real gold and the real silver or the white cloth? It says there, it is those who fear God, isn't it? The ones who fear God. Now I want you to pay attention because chapter 3 verse 5 and chapter 3 verse 16 are linked together. Because in chapter 3 verse 16, it says, Then those who fear the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who fear the Lord and honor his name. Now, I hope I do a good job explaining this because you actually really need your Bible in front of you to understand what I'm saying. The person that fears God, or the people who fear God, they came together and they talked with one another. But they did not talk harshly against God. They did not talk wearily against God. They came together as a church or a people and they encourage one another. They were saying things like, keep serving God, keep loving God, keep honouring God, keep fearing God, keep following His statutes and requirements, keep mourning for sin. And as a result, it says there, God listened, right? God listened and He heard and He records down what these God-fearers did, said, and who they were. See, God is not a God who is invisible, right? Who forgets. It's like what Simpson was saying. God sees what we're doing. God knows what we're doing. And for those who fear Him, He will record it round and write it down and He will note down who it is. And these people, it is very important to, to note, it says there, who are recorded, who God remembers, what will happen to them? It says there, that in verse 17, they will be my treasured possession. They will be my, like my crown jewels. You know the crown jewels of a crown are very, very valuable. So they, the people were saying, oh, you know, what is the profit? What's the gain? Why should we serve God? Well, God says, 
If you fear me and serve me, you will be like my crown jewels. I will value you. You will be valuable to me. Now, one very important thing to note then is that it is very, very dangerous to speak harsh words or act, act harshly and wearily to God. Because the purified metal are those who fear God and honour Him and talk in an encouraging way to one another about serving and loving God. So look very carefully at the passage, right? Because this is about life and death, this is about heaven and hell, okay? Those who speak wearily, who weary God in their words, who speak hard words against God, they do not make it to heaven. Only those, it says there, who actually come together, who fear God, and God listens to them and says, you know, I see what you've done. I see that you're keeping persevering. See, at the end of the day, what we speak and talk and our expression of what we see of God, does it show that we fear God and honour Him? Does it really show that we fear and honour Him? Because that's what God is saying here. If we think that it is useless to serve God, it is useless to follow His requirements, it is useless to mourn and repent of sin, then God says that you know, you will be the ones who will face judgment, you will be the ones who are refined out and washed away. See, what is the state of your spiritual life today? So this is your spiritual talk, uh, stock take, right? This is your spiritual audit. Is there something there? Is there something real in your relationship with God? Don't worry about whether you're here this morning, whether you, you know, woke up 5.30 this morning to read the Bible. But do you fear and honour God? Right? Do you, do you show it in the way that you want to serve Him? Keep His requirements uh, to repent and mourn of your sins? Are you generous towards God with your money? Are you, are you rich towards God with your money? Are you hoarding your money? Because if you pass your spiritual audit, then you will be God's treasured possession when He comes again. But woe to you, isn't it, if you speak harshly about Him, if you live a life where you think, oh, you know, it's useless serving God. It's useless listening to Him. It is useless mourning about your sin. It's useless I might as well keep all the money for myself. Then God says, when, you, when He comes, right? You, he comes to you in judgment. And the thing is, God is coming. We know that God is coming. See, in uh, the book of Mark, the next slide, uh, it says very clearly, and I think Mark wants this to be very clear to us, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written as I, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare my way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John came, John the Baptist came, baptizing the desert region, prepare, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you might sort of ask, actually, this yellow part is from the book of Malachi. Why does Mark say it is written in Isaiah, the prophet? But that's for another sermon. Okay? But, but, Mark is trying to tell us that John the Baptist is the messenger who prepares the way for God. And Jesus is God. He is the Son of God who has come. So Judgment Day is here. It's coming. There are, there are, there's no more warnings anymore, right? Uh, so, we have to be ready for Him. See, God is not like um, 
someone who wants to surprise us with judgment. You know, it's not like musical chairs. You know, you're like you're going around the chairs, and all of a sudden the music stops. Right, there's no warning. God wants to warn us that the day of judgment is coming, and we need to be ready for it. It's like a speed camera. You know, the speed camera for those of you who drive. There's always a sign there saying "speed camera ahead." So when they put the sign there, "speed camera ahead," they're trying to warn you to slow down, not for you to get caught. So you know, then whenever you see that sign, well, anyway, for me, I don't know what for the rest of you. When you see the sign, speed camera ahead. I'm always looking. Hey, what's my speed, huh? Okay, so when I'm going too fast, I slow down. If I'm going the right speed, I stay where it is. But the last thing I do is I I never speed up, isn't it? I mean, maybe you you got too much money or you don't want to drive anymore, right? Then you can speed up, lah. Okay, because the speed camera ahead, 70 kilometers. Then you say, okay, I don't want to drive anymore. I got lots of money. I'll go to 100. Okay, but that's really silly, right? Who does that? Maybe people do, but I don't know anybody like that. But God is saying to you, the speed camera is there. Judgment Day is there. The messenger has come. Okay, that's like the sign saying, hey, judgment is coming. So he's saying to the people, right, you've got to fear, honor God. Serve Him. Right, follow His requirements. Mourn for your sin. Be rich towards Him. And this is not what I say. It's not what the pastor says or the church says. It is what God says. Because when it comes to the matters of the heart or relationships or money or serving God, it doesn't matter what I say, it's what God says. God is the one who's going to be going to do the judgment. So as you do your spiritual stock take, are you right with God today? Are you living in fear and honoring Him? Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We thank you that you are God who truly cares for His people, who has sent His Son Jesus to die for them. But we really want to thank You for Your God as well, who is holy and is a God of justice and will not let evil be unchallenged or unpaid. We pray for ourselves that we may never look at the world around us and envy evil or wickedness and because of their pleasure or their ease or their well-being but that we will see the day of judgment coming. We will see that John the Baptist has come. We will see that Jesus has come. We will see that Jesus is going to come again in judgment. And that we need to fear and honour you. May we truly serve you and never tire of serving you. May we follow your requirements for righteous living. May we mourn and repent for our sin. May we not hoard our money, but be rich towards you. And dear Father, we pray... For all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen.